Welcome to this week's On Second Thought. We'll be hopefully talking about the California-Washington game one last time. I know we said that on Sunday, but I am Kayla Olin, and with me is always Mike Martin. Mike, how are you? I have recovered somewhat from the from that loss. I finally got a little yeah. bit of sleep, but I'm telling you, there are some things that just have stuck with me that I want to look at them once, one last time or the the second time, and see if I could put it to bed and kind of focus on Hawaii. I would definitely like to stop talking about this, but I'm sure that we're going to start talking about things that you kind of wanted to finish touching base on. I know we have a couple of fun guests that we're going to have on this show as well. And after thinking about it a little more, have you changed your opinion on your overall final thought and first impression that we talked about on Sunday? No, not really, because, you know, the crowd leaving played a pretty big role in in Cal's effectiveness um, when you get to third down and there's 70,000 fans 70,000 fans bearing down on you and you can't hear the call you disrupt their cadence so that had an impact my opinion hasn't changed on that the the things that Washington could have done better or that you know the the false start on um on fourth and one that turns it into a field goal instead of uh, moving it in down to the one things like that. The, the Bocelli not dragging his foot, um, the, uh, the helmet coming off for Jacob Eason. I mean, these are all factors that turn it from a 34 to 20 game into a uh, 20 to 19 loss. That is fair. And I'm sure we're, sitting here just it's eating away at us the whole false start on fourth and one I can only imagine those players and so hopefully they come out there with a little bit more umph on Saturday against Hawaii but but we'll not, see. not lost on me is how good that Cal defense is though those are generally they're regarded. underrated very underrated by most people but you and I have talked about how good that defense is for uh since the last Cal game and you know Washington lost nine starters still held a pretty good Cal offense because I think that's uh, something that a lot of people are forgetting that that is a Bo Baldwin offense who led his team to a national championship in 2013 at Eastern Washington he is there as an offensive coordinator he's an offensive mastermind and I think we're going to see how just how good that Cal offense is and I think it, it it's it puts a lot of stuff on film. It's the second game of the season. I know a lot of people are ready to throw these uh, senior receivers underneath the bus, but uh, I'm ready to really, you know, take a little bit off some of the passes for Jacob Eason and make these catches. And I think that uh, get some of these younger players involved, uh, not taking in the starting position. I think that there's just there's too much to. Um, that that I think that these these the speed that they have the big guys that are behind them they're tall but they're not fast they need right now guys that can stretch the field and that's what Chico does that's what Bocelli does and that's what Fuller does with the right play calling which I think that Washington is lacking right now and I also think that in Coach Pete's presser on Monday he mentioned when asked you know why didn't you want to replace any of your senior receivers with some younger talent? And it just didn't even cross their mind. He didn't want to do it. He doesn't believe in it. So I think it's, I'm, I'm kind of glad that we got this California game out of the way because it's such a difficult one. And now Washington has, 
has two non-conference games with Hawaii and BYU to make those adjustments before actually really entering into the Pac-12 conference play. Yeah, and really kind of get, getting things settled in the rotation on the defensive line because that's one exactly. thing that, that you saw with Cal. They did not rotate at all. Um, uh, uh, what's his name? Uh, Mr. Big Talker. He was in the Evan Weaver. He was in the entire game. And, you know, Washington, there were times when I was just like, the big situation, why is Levi on the sideline? Why is uh, Bronson on the sideline? You know, why aren't the the guys that, that have paid the price for years sitting behind guys, why aren't they in there and stopping these drives? And it, it drove me a little bit crazy. And Yeah, you were mentioning it during the game. You were like, look who's out right now. Onzerike's not in, you know, uh, Bowman's not in. You're just pointing out all of these guys who are sitting there watching on the sidelines. Yeah, and and I think that you put them in, and I think Coach Pete believed in his game plan, and I, and really I believe in his game plan as well because it was uh, uncharacteristic of a lineman on fourth and one to jump. Okay, they're, they're, the the helmet coming off for Eason is unfortunate. I would have called a timeout. I didn't know why they didn't call a timeout when his helmet you, off. You well, the the thing though is, if you do call a timeout, that doesn't matter. You have to, he has to be out for one play regardless. Not if not in college. If you ha- if they have a timeout, they can go back in. So. Um, I, I believe that's the rule anyway. Uh, maybe one of our guests, Brian Jackson, can clear it up later on when he comes on. But, um, you know, if, if something could have happened differently on that play, you know, they're just uh, – just it wasn't the play calling. I know you hate this, but it was the execution. Definitely, definitely. And you and I talked about it till we were blue in the face on Sunday in our recap of the game so many things and I don't think it was just one person that cost that game I think it was a group effort unfortunately yep and we'll I have a guest coming on so we'll talk with him about some of those things yeah speaking of let's get right into your first guest I'm super excited did you want to go and introduce him all right thanks Kayla now we're joined by pro football focus college football analyst Cam Miller uh Cam thanks for coming on dog thoughts yeah, you know, I appreciate it. Anytime I get to talk any any college football, the better. The more college football, the best. So anytime. Man, you are living the dream, watching and talking football and getting paid to do it. Yeah, yeah. you know, it doesn't, it truly doesn't get any better than this. I, I officially have what I call Fridays off that open up into Saturdays. And my Saturday off is technically watching from noon as long as I can stay up on the East Coast. So as long as there's no weather delays, I think I should be fine, and I think uh, you know that goes that goes to the Huskies. <laughs> yeah, well, that that's that is kind of funny. Well, I do have a bit of jealousy for you because I mean I love talking college football and it'd be cool to get paid for it, but I have a little bit of jealousy except that you're in Cincinnati and I'm on San Juan Island in Washington State. <laughs> It's a little, it's a little different, you know. I'm a Floridian by heart and by trait and by you know 25 years by proxy. So, I, it's a little different. Uh, I lived in Columbus for a few years to truly really get the Midwest feel and the the you know everything shuts down for Friday night football, Saturday afternoon football too. So, Ohio's fun for football. I will say that, and uh, fortunately, I, I do get paid to live here to talk and be around football. So that's what I think we definitely have going for us here. Yeah, well, at least down in Cincinnati, you don't have the lake effect snow, right? That is true. And I will say Cincinnati weather has blown my socks off. I've been truly impressed with Cincinnati weather coming from Columbus as well. 
Columbus, I think, has a truly uh, terrible mix. It gets it gets trapped in this river effect from Cincinnati and the lake effect from, from Cleveland. And so Columbus just has this swirl of gray for about three to four months from about December to March. You don't see the sun and it's, uh, it's a little depressing. Yeah, I do not. I do not miss that. Well, I, and I, I know you have a, a, a team that does uh, your analysis, but how pissed was the guy that drew the short straw for having to cover the Cal Washington game that finished after the game in Hawaii had finished? Oh, you know, I, I do feel for them, but I was also there on the East Coast doing some of these Pac-12 After Dark games back in the day when I first got started. So my my empathy runs runs short when I remember the, the nights that I basically fell asleep on my computer doing some of our data collections. But you do kind of feel for him, especially I think this year one of our process guys that does the live tracking was, you know, this I think was his fourth or fifth game that we've allowed the live data for him to do. So I do, you do kind of feel for him, and, and you got to go reassure and say not all games are like that. So keep <laughs> pressing on, keep grinding. Well, for the the seventeen hundred of us that stayed for the game, now that I talked about going back to the island, I literally did not get home until about uh, six o'clock in the morning. So you know there are some drawbacks to uh, living on the island because I have to take a ferry to get home. But uh, Pro Football Focus does such a great job of breaking down every single college snap. And, and I pay more attention to really what you guys have to say than what some of the beat writers or some of the uh, instant reaction uh, talk shows. Because you guys cover every player and every play and every snap, and nobody else does that. And that's kind of – you guys kind of take the emotion out of it, and that's what I really like about Pro Football Focus. Yeah, we're kind of, uh, you know, we're nerds that live in our mom's basement, I think is the normal label that's slapped upon us. But we do, it's a great job. It's a great way to say it, actually, is that we remove the emotion from it, which sometimes a lot of college football is, or at least the reactions from college football is about the pageantry and about that emotion. So what we do is we do have every player, every game, and every snap of every single game. And it's, you know, we have this wealth of data that we're just coming out, coming out of our ears at this point. And we're just finally really grasping how important and vital it is, as I think the rest of the football world, I I think NFL is there. You know, they talk about Moneyball being analytics-driven to baseball finally. We've seen it with basketball. And now we do understand that, you know, you look at the Eagles' first game and they went for it on fourth down the majority of the time. They go for two when they're up by seven type of thing. Analytics are now making their way fully involved in the NFL. And we want to be that forefront because we have this great data for college football. And it's, it's great to hear that it's coming. It's, it's being so well received. I'm doing everything I can to make our, our forward facing products look as pretty as they do. So I, we have, we have this data. It not only works for college football and talking and analyzing football, but it also does a great job of predicting pro players as well uh, from the college game and being able to extrapolate that from our data. Well, yeah, and that's that's what I love about it. But I'm also curious about how you rate the games in in the Washington Cal game. You ha- you only have Ryan Bowman listed uh, in your two deeps, but you have four Cal defenders. I think they show up in your two deeps, despite Washington pushing Cal to the brink on a few plays. You know, Washington actually stopped themselves rather than Cal stopping them. Like there was the false start uh, inside the five on fourth and one where they uh, they'd gone for it. Uh, three out of four times they converted on fourth down, uh, but Shelley not dragging his foot in the end zone. There were just a lot of things that, that Washington kind of shot themselves in the foot, but it seems like um, a lot of people are maybe giving Cal more credit than where than they're due. 
Yeah, and I think that also the, the that probably our ours is there a little bit. I do look at it, and I always love to to sort it by whoever played the most snaps when you look at those grades too. So a guy like Evan Weaver for Cal, we all know who he is. Everybody should know who he is if you don't outside of the Pac-12 world and even on any sort of West Mountain, Central, East Coast side. Everybody should know that dude. Uh, but I, the way our grades do work is that it's a per play grade for every player and it's on a scale. So it's a scale of negative two to point or positive two. And those are in 0.5 increments. So each player gets slapped. This a zero grade is a, is an average grade. It's an expected grade. So for instance, a, a pass rusher, not doing this, not getting beat when he's running, rushing the passer, but also not recording a pressure An offensive lineman, not getting beat as well and not allowing a quick pressure is not a negative or a positive. It's just an expected play. And so, they do a great job. They're then normalized once at the end of the game, once on their, they're on this plus minus scale. And that's where they, you know, come out to these numbers that are on a zero to a hundred scale. So it does a great job. I think of, of isolating the individualized performance. And I think if you actually go to like our by team grades, which I don't have offhand here, but you look at it and you can kind of look at the team defense grade, but that is also kind of an aggregate of the, you know, the individualized players, but you know, it does, it does a great job and makes it sort of, these individualized performances stand out. So like Bowman does stand out with the, he's normalized to that zero to a hundred scale with a 76 overall grade. doesn't sound that good. If you know, you know, zero to a hundred in terms of the ABCD F grade from, from elementary school, but <laughs> 76 grade to lead your defense on 43 snaps is actually a really good number. And it's a really good number for an edge player like him as well that we've seen across the country this year. Right. And, and it seems to me that the score could have easily been 30, 35 to 20. Um, Cal really just had two drives um, where they kind of pushed Washington around. But for the most part, it was Washington that was um, winning those, drive, those drives. They had four drives, I think, or three or four drives get inside the red zone. They weren't able to come, come away with uh, anything more than a field goal. And I mean, I'll give credit to Cal for doing what they did to win the game. But the, those drops by the Washington receivers, they were killer. And Washington has seen something similar to that in the Apple Cups over the last few years, where it's alligator arms. And um, stats aside, how do you think the mental side of catching a ball weighs into the minds of the receivers in those drops? I do think, it, you know, when you uh, – the old expression is you get your hands on it, you got to catch it. But once you've dropped one, I think that expression then changes and you're instantly – you're hyper-focused on it. So I think drops not only weigh upon receivers in the in the fact that they're worried about dropping the next one, they may not run a crisp enough route on the next time they're on the field or they know that they're the first read for a quarterback, that they're thinking too much about that drop on the previous snap, the previous target that they're not going to necessarily separate as well. So I do think it weighs upon it. You actually see there's a discernible effect that we've seen with quarterbacks in both this at NFL and in the college level that the more drops they have on the, on the actual, on their stat sheet, they get more accurate. The quarterbacks are more, you know, they're still accurate. We have a metric that covers adjusted completion percentage, what it's called. And it covers this, you know, incompletions outside of a quarterback's, uh, fault or, or hidden, you know, they're not his re- drops are number one on that throwaway spikes and a few others. But you look at that and you see a quarterback with a lot of drops. They actually, their accuracy numbers are almost spiking because they're putting these balls in, in positions and places that they know the receivers need the balls to be. So a quarterback gets a little bit more accurate with more drops, which kind of sounds like it'd be the opposite way around, but you do see quarterbacks also have an effect when uh, more ways than one and more ways than the obvious when their receivers do drop the balls. Wow, that's uh, well. 
That's interesting. But you and I have also talked about the impact of home crowds, and it it seems to me that Cal caught a pretty big break uh, with that storm and the crowd leaving because of the weather. Um, I know you don't really have anything to kind of go off on that, but we'll go with gut feel on that. Do you think that, that Cal caught a break? I, I would say so. I think anytime you lose any sort of home field advantage, I mean, you could look at it as far as even just in a game that is maybe, so to speak. Uh, I look, I went to Florida State University, let's face it. Doe Campbell was always a place, the place to play. But a noon game at Doak is no nowhere close to an 8 o'clock game because the students aren't there at noon. Students get there and they show up for a, a half a quarter even, and they're out because it's 100 degrees in the shade. So, yeah, there, I think I've seen it. Anybody that's been to a college football game for the entirety, anybody that's covered a game knows that there is definitely an effect there. And I would say that definitely, uh, you know, the, not only the weather, the crowd noise, the lack of noise, and the lack of just people beating down upon you, you know, I don't think Washington was maybe ready for that, whereas Cal kind of, you know, took it and, and actually ran with it as their advantage. Yeah, I, I agree. Um, okay, now we'll get into the Cal game just a little bit more uh, here in a second, but I know we're just two games into the season, so this is a bit of a reach of a question, but you had Washington quarterback Jacob Eason as the 36th best quarterback in the country. I suspect that a lot of that ranking is that he hadn't played uh, in two years, but based upon what you've seen so far uh, in 2019, do you think you'd move him up or down in the rankings if you had to re-rank at this point? I think I, I would need a little bit more time. I actually plan on doing this, and this is just to kind of maybe I'll help preview it for myself. After week four, I'm going to keep that as fluid as I possibly can and actually re, kind of re, re-rank them um, after week four so I have a bigger sample size. But I, after this performance against Cal, where he's got a bunch of drops, I think 36 is pretty solid right now, to be honest, because there are a couple of guys that need to move up that were maybe below him, and a couple of guys that need to come down that maybe were above him. And so I think a guy like uh, you know, Steven Montez could slide up as well. We've seen a little bit more consistent from him. Obviously, the, the game against Nebraska is going to buoy him up, but the, and conversely, Easton's game against Cal, he didn't grade out very well, so we kind of see him go. We slide a little bit if necessary, but I do like you know, what a couple other quarterbacks have been able to do in the Pac-12 alone. I think, you know, we're in rarefied air with a bunch of really high-quality starters in the Pac-12 alone that you could see in our rankings when I redo this as well. 36 would probably be a very favorable spot just with how much talent we have after two weeks and that I expect to see after four weeks. Okay. Well, he has a big arm, um, you know, and I think a lot of that is why he was rated as a, a five-star guy coming out of high school. But Coach Pete sometimes says that he throws a heavy ball. And you talked about not really grading out uh, that well off of this game. Uh, the way that I, I was brought up, like you were saying earlier, is that if you get your hands on the ball, you catch it, no excuses. Um, he was 18 for 30 in that game for 162 yards. Um but given the drops, uh, what can you tell me about your advanced metrics and and how uh, we can view that 18 for 30 uh, with the catchable balls? Yeah, I, I kind of I go back to our adjusted completion percentage. So he's actually had seven over seven and a half percent of his catchable passes dropped. And that's a pretty high mark when you have you know only Tyler Huntley and Davis Mills and on smaller sample sizes at Stanford have a have a much higher rate uh, than that. And so I do think that. You know, there's that affects him a little bit, and but how we and how we track drops as well, 
we do it if it is in your hands, but the defender makes a great play or actually rips it from you. It's not necessarily a drop. It's just a, a positive for the defender as well. So the drops are those clear ones that do hit you in the hands or the, at our in our quote, what we call our accuracy bubble in the frame. And so a pass like I think the notable one was the Trevor Lawrence pass that he threw maybe three, four, or five feet behind T. Higgins. If Higgins had dropped that play this weekend against Texas A&M, that would not have gone down as a drop. That would have been, you know, he still made the adjustment on a ball that was five feet behind him. He just made an awesome play. So he gets a crazy positive grave or something like that, whereas if he did get his hands on it and didn't catch one of those, it wouldn't go down as a drop for us. So we have a little bit of varying levels. Uh, we've seen in the NFL level that some, some other entities may disagree with us a little bit, but I do think it's, it ultimately starts at that list where if you get your hands on it, you got to catch it, but there's some, there's definitely levels or shades of gray within those. Right. Now, do you have a, a, an actual drop number for the game? Cause just off the top of my head and it's, my heart is going into palpitations from it, but there, uh, I, I can recall, uh, six or seven actual, just, just where it hits the receiver in the hands. Right now we have him at four, and I think there's one other one that we had discrepancies that, you know, maybe it was ripped out or maybe it was a better defensive play than it was actually a drop on the receiver. So right now we have four of those actual catchable passes of his, and so that's where we may be missing one of those that a player may have done an actual, you know, a great adjustment and and does hit him in the hands but drops it. So we have four of his catchable passes. So essentially he threw – uh, where am I at? So 22 catchable passes were thrown this, this weekend, and only 18 were caught. And so four of those is where we're sitting at right now. With a, We have another one, and it's checked in my thing for analysis reviews. So after the I – think, I think it's one of the next few on our list here. But right now, I think it's four. I think we'll stick with four um, after having watched it myself. Yeah. Well, a 7.5% 7, 7. drop rate, uh, that's pretty – that's disturbing. Um, well, I'm, I'm sure they'll be working on uh, catch radius and uh, focus over the next couple of days. But can you break down Jacob Eason's day for us and what you um, – for the way you kind of break down a single game performance, I know you talked about the drop rate and all of that, but can you go maybe dig a little bit deeper into that? Yeah, so besides drop rate, one of the bigger things that I really like to look at is, um, and this is because it's very correlatable, it's very stable, it's actually the most stable uh, metric besides our grades from game to game, week to week, but also season to season, and then college to pro. It's it's how they fare, how a quarterback fares from a clean pocket. And that's, that's when pressure is not put on you the, the offensive line keeps you clean from any sort of pressure so kept clean passer rating is one of our best ones to look at and unfortunately for Ethan I think this is ultimately where it falls his interception came from a clean pocket and that's not necessarily as disturbing as, as you would think but it does tarnish that overall passer rating you know because it's so heavy heavily dependent upon touchdowns and interceptions but he was he had three passes also dropped from a clean pocket so you kind of have an interception maybe, but also three passes dropped. So he's got kind of this weird little influx. But his overall pass rating from a clean pocket was the worst in the Pac-12 this weekend. And ultimately, you look at the guys that were the worst, it was Jake Luton at Oregon State, Jacob Eason, DTR at UCLA, Davis Mills at Stanford, and then you have Garbers at Cal. So you have, you know, of those guys on there, you know, four losses of those bottom five guys. And so it's a very stable metric, not only from predicting maybe what a quarterback will do week to week, but also it's a very good way to look and kind of eyeball who played the best, not only at quarterback, but also on offense. And that's really where you see it. And you see kind of, you can almost chalk up a bunch of L's if you have a really low passer rating under pressure. That's I think where 
he is not going to be under pressure a lot because the offensive line is as stout maybe as we thought it was, if not a lot better. So he's going to have a lot of time to work from clean pockets, and I think that's where we need to step up as, as conference play does continue. All right. Well, you talked about um, the clean pocket, but do you rate anything like a catchable ball, one that hits the receivers in the hands? Do you do you rate the quality of the pass um, in, in anything that you have? Because there was, uh, there was one that he threw to Savon, uh, on uh, on a little, um, I'm not really sure what the route would be called, but he was just hanging out over on the side. It wasn't really a, a bubble screen or anything like that, uh, or a draw, but or or anything like that. But it just hit him in the hands, and um, it looked like you know he didn't need to put that much onto it. He could have led uh, Savon out of the backfield a little bit. Do you rate quality of pass yes. at all? Yeah, we do. Um, each each pass gets graded um, independent of what the receivers do with it. And so sometimes, you know, you'll see a difference in grade points because of those. You know, you'll see a guy like Jake Fromm actually graded really well in week one, but he only had 160-something yards. That's because each pass was a positively graded pass, whereas Easton's performance, you know, he finished with a really low passing grade, but that's because he had two of our turnover-worthy plays compared to no big-time throws. So those are you know, to, to speak very quickly about those, a big-time throw is our highest-graded pass. It's those that are thrown pretty far downfield with a lot of velocity, a lot of zip into tight windows or, you know, into only places that a receiver can catch them, whereas turnover-worthy passes are independently thrown and should be turnovers, basically. They're our lowest-graded passes. So a dropped interception, so to speak, would still get credited as a turnover-worthy pass because it would be a negative play, although the box score would just show a blank incompletion. So that's also where we kind of look at it and see Ethan, no big time throws, two turnover where he plays in the game, and that ultimately is what tarnishes his grade because those are the the overall passing grades per pass gets you know independent of what happens. So uh, three yard screen pass that the receiver takes, you know, seventy five yards, quarterback's just gonna get a minor positive because he did exactly what you expected of him. But a forty five yard ball in the air, perfectly placed to Aaron Fuller in tight coverage, that's a huge grade. That's only the quarterback making that play, basically. To win, you know, and that's where there's kind of those varying levels that you do need to take a look at our analytics. And you can go kind of do on the back end of this that I do, and then I have, and we see it. And that's kind of where I like to also look outside of those other just kind of stable metrics. We look at these big time throws, turnover really plays, and kind of you know we learn a lot from those, so to speak. And they're also really fun to watch. Yeah. Okay. Great. Well, I think that that your rating is kind of what we are seeing with our own eyes. You're just able to quantify it. But let's get into kind of the nuts and bolts of uh, that Cal defense, which uh, it comes from a pretty good uh, front three or four, whatever they go with. But how good are those Cal defensive backs? Yeah. It's uh, honestly, I think they're maybe one of the more underrated groups, which is kind of crazy to think. Cameron Bynum at safety was awesome. He's been awesome in our grading system. We've got really good grades on him. Jalen Hawkins also has kind of come out of nowhere. I think Ashton Davis might have not actually played a very good game on the back end for him against Washington, but you know he's also got good grades as well. I think there's really there's realistically four guys that could be you know on our list. If they're not first team. You know, second team, they're honorable mention, at least, just because of what they've been able to do so far this season. So, I mean, but Bynum, Bynum is the guy that sticks out definitely um, opposite of or outside of a guy like Evan Weaver, who truly can cover and do just about anything you'd ever want from him. Well, you know, and let's that you talked about, you know, I mean, there's some names that by the end of the season are probably going to be household names. But how difficult is it to get behind those Cal defensive backs? 
I would like to see it happen more often than not. I'm completely fine backing Evan Weaver as maybe the best linebacker in the conference and maybe one of the best in the country. But I would like to see it happen a little bit more. You know, I've seen we've seen a bunch of good grades come in here and there that are spotty. Bynum probably is the one that has, has had the most consistent grades, but he can't do it all on his own. You know, he was he made his interception against Hunter Bryant, and so that's obviously you know he's a he's a receiver tra- tra- trapped in a tight end body. That's at least, but we see him as kind of love what Hunter Bryant's able to do, and he's still graded out positively in the game. But Bynum had a really good grade against everybody he went up against, and I mean the guy he he had a target on Aaron Fuller target on Salvon and then Hunter Bryan as well. So he really kind of, he, he got matched up against the gauntlet and he fared very well. Didn't allow a reception in the game and had a pick. So I do like what he's been able to do. He's probably the one I would say I'd be happy backing right now. I'd like to see a little bit more and a little bit more consistency out of the other guys. Okay. Well, that is going to do it for us. That is, there's some amazing stuff. I can't wait to, to see how you uh, how you grade out the Washington defensive backs as they kind of grow and they go against maybe some uh, better receivers. Um, but tell us how people can follow you on Twitter and talk a little bit of, uh, and just uh, all of the stuff that you would do at Pro Football Focus. Yeah, so me personally, I, I like to stick to the highlight reel type of stuff. So I'm PFF underscore Cam on Twitter and you know, I love dropping some nuggets here when I do my research on any stories. So PFF underscore cam, but then also on Twitter, you know, myself and Andrew Russell, my, my go-to guy for college, he runs our PFF underscore college Twitter account. And that's where we really, we put out the meat, the bones, the structure of all of our data. So all of our grades, all of our teams of the week, back to home team of the week, you know, our Heisman watch list, our all Americans when we come to them, the starting quarterback rankings all on Twitter. So PFF underscore college is definitely the place to go. All right. Well, that will do it for us. Cam Miller from Pro Football Focus. Thanks for coming on uh, on Second Thought. I appreciate it. Cheers. Thank you so much, Mike. And thank you, Cam, for coming on. That was really great stuff. I always like to listen to Pro Football Focus, but until that actual breakdown, it became much more clear, I think, on the whole grading system and everything like that. So make sure you go and give him a follow to keep up with that. And next, we have another special guest. That's right. We didn't have one, but two for you today. We have Brian Jackson. He's going to be joining us every week to give us a nice little breakdown of a play during the game. So, Brian, you want to tell us about yourself? Sure. Thanks, Kayla. So, Brian Jackson, and I born and raised in Utah. I've actually been on the show one time before, but it was a while back, but uh Born and raised in Utah, I played football at Utah State University. Um, so when I heard that you guys are coming out for Washington, I shouldn't say you guys because I now live in Washington, and I love watch, watching Washington play. But hearing that you guys are coming up against Brigham Young University here in a couple weeks, please beat them. <laughs> the, 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 the fans are the most arrogant fans in the world, and they just beat Tennessee on a lucky play where the corner completely messed up they beat tennessee and now they're thinking they're they're national champions again um which is argument <laughs> roll tide right, right? <laughs> the roll tide so they beat tennessee or uh, they beat tennessee so we no i know but they're the new alabamas they're the new alabamas that's what there I you go understand now. anyway i absolutely love college football i played uh for four years i was a defensive back strong safety uh got to play schools all over the nation so being able to join your show and talk a little football about the university of washington i will enjoy doing that and providing a little analysis well hey you and i get along so it's going to be 
be two against one with Mike now. <laughs> Glad Mike it, is it muted probably, right now, so he <laughs> so that he doesn't exactly. So I know that you have kind of watched the film and then picked a play in a situation. So. So if you just want to go ahead and lead us into the situation, you and I can kind of quickly talk about that before you actually break down the play. Yeah, so if, as you recall, early in the second quarter, uh, Washington at the time was leading 3-0, to zero, and the, def- the defense had just shut down Cal inside their Cal's own 30-yard line and went three and out. And just talking from being an old defensive guy, anytime you can go shut a team out three and out, and get off the field, that is a success for the defense. Um, you gained a lot of momentum at that time, and so, you know, the team's right and high. Then on top of that, Cal punts the ball, and the punter completely shanks it. Ends up being a 15-yard punt. It goes out of bounds at the Cal, at the Cal 43-yard line, giving first and 10 to Washington with incredible field position. So, what I've seen is that oftentimes when that happens, what coaches like to do is they like to be aggressive. Um, typically, they'll throw a long pass down the field, and I think defense sometimes recognize that too after a, a short three and out and they have a short field. Well, that's exactly what Washington did, and they they were aggressive. Uh, Ethan threw the ball on a skinny post trying to hit Bryant, and it was picked off, and we're going to talk about that play a little bit. But that's the play that I – that. Uh, um, I want to talk about, unfortunately, Cal went right back onto the field after that and uh, got the momentum right back. So that's the play we're going to talk about. It was definitely game-changing, very frustrating. It's not often that a California team gives up such a horrible punt. Let's be honest, it was absolutely horrible. But as a, as a former DB in safety, in your mind, did you know that they were going long? And do you think that's what the Cal players, because they are such a good defensive team, thought? I think they, they definitely, uh, you know, it, it was a good possibility that they were. I thought they were when I was watching the game. It's like, yep, here comes the time where you're going to go for a bomb and try to hit them quick and just keep that momentum going that you just built up. Um, so probably they were. And if you look at the DB's technique, and we'll talk about it, uh, he was he played the perfect technique for a long pass and uh it was part of the reason that he was able to intercept the ball on the play and and then i guess before we actually break down the play itself would you have if you're a coach would you have called that like play was it a good play call that the defender just read better or was it a poor play call well i think it was a good play call in that you, you, you took a, a 6'3", 240-pound receiver up against a 6-foot, 190-pound DB, and you were able to get him in a one-on-one matchup. Typically, the receiver, if he's, you know, he's going to win that battle, especially with a quarterback like Washington has in Ethan, you think you're going to win that battle. And it was just a great play made by the DB. He, he set himself up perfect. So I, I don't know that, that the, play, the play call was horrible, but uh, definitely the, the Cal DB was prepared in, in his technique to defend it the right way. I'm glad you brought that up because I am definitely one of the biggest critics of Bush Hamden, I think, especially on the play calling during this California game. So you kind of relaxed me, I guess. I think maybe I can start sleeping now that I know that. But let's start breaking down the play then. All right. So... 
Here comes Washington. They're on their own, or they're on the Cal 43-yard line going in trying to score. The ball set up on the left hash, and they put Hunter Bryant split out wide to the top of the field. And he lines himself up just inside the numbers, and he is left one-on-one with Cameron Bynum as the, the cornerback. I heard Mark, Mike talking earlier, and Cal's DBs are definitely some of the best that I've seen. Anyway, they, they're, they're lined up top, and Bynum decides to come up in a press formation against Hunter Bryant. So we're talking about a little six-foot DB lined up against a six-foot-three, almost six-foot-four receiver that outweighs him by about 40, 40 almost 50 pounds um, out there uh, up top to the right. So one of the things that, that you'll notice if you watch the film and watch the play, Hunter Bryant comes out, fires off the line, and he starts an outside stem. So what that means is he starts to run his route by bending outside towards the sideline. And good DBs, this is what I was taught in college, anytime a receiver starts to break outside or stem you outside, you know that he's coming back inside. You just plan on it. That's what they're doing. They're trying to stretch you out wide so that they can have space to be able to break back inside. So that's what Hunter Bryant does. He starts an outside stem. Um, Cameron Bynum is set up in a press coverage. And what he does is he opens up his hips as soon as the ball is snapped and opens his eyes back to uh, the line of scrimmage and back to Eason, the quarterback. And so when he does that, he's able to recognize and see what's going on with the play. The play was a quick fake run up the middle, and then it was just a quick throw on a skinny post to Hunter Bryant. So Hunter Bryant starts his stem, and then as soon as he breaks back to the middle, Cameron Bynum is already, because of his eyes and opening up his hips the way he did, he was able to position himself on top of the receiver, on top of Hunter Bryant. So when Hunter Bryant makes his break, if you watch, around the 30-yard line, Cameron Bynum shoots across Hunter, uh, shoots across Hunter Bryant and actually uses Bryant's body to propel him forward, and he gets himself in a better position to be able to catch the, catch the ball and intercept the pass. So he propelled himself forward, and what Hunter Bryant really did wrong and didn't do well is when he came out of his break after standing the receiver, he really kind of was not going full speed. And he allowed the DB to get up on top of him. So he gets on top, uses the receiver to propel himself forward, perfect technique, the ball's thrown. Now at this point, he's in a better position. So Bryant really needs to go up with full force, high point the ball, actually kind of, and, and he should win that battle. But what happened is Cameron Bynum, he wins the battle, high points the ball, takes the ball away. It was just a ball hunter, really and was able to intercept the pass. And it was a huge game-changing moment at that time. But I will tell you, a good DB knows when it's an outside stem, the receiver's coming back inside. So those guys were just coached really, really well. Most definitely. And do you think Hunter Bryant could have sold it a little bit differently? Or do you think there was really no way for him to kind of deceive Cameron Bynum? Well, I... I think that what he what he, he needed to do was he needed to, if you watch the play back when he starts the outside stem and Cameron Bynum immediately opens up his hips and looking back towards the quarterback 
you're at an advantage that you should be able to get up. The coaches talk about it, but you get up on the, the DB's toes, meaning you basically run up past them. And he could have done that. It just felt like he wasn't coming out of his break hard enough. Had he done that and gone on top of the receiver, he would have been in a much better position to be able to go up and, and high point and catch the ball. So it wasn't that he, he didn't sell his break good enough. It was that he, he didn't execute on coming out of the stem like he should have. That makes sense. That was I love that we are doing this segment now because it's so informative. People can watch this play. They can kind of see it start to develop and they can see where it goes wrong. But with your knowledge and your expertise, you know, I don't think people really see that his eyes and the way he opens his hips and everything like that, nobody really kind of picks up on that right away. So this is some really great stuff. And then I guess my question is, why did you pick this play? Well, it was a game. It was a, it was a really momentum changer in the game. It was a time where you look at it, the score's 3-0, to zero. You just have you just took over the ball as an offense after a three and out. You're in Cal's side of the field. You go in and you score a touchdown at that point in the game. Now you're going up ten to zero. You have all the momentum, and the way that your defense is playing, it's going to be very hard for Cal to come back in the game. But instead, you all you did is in one play, what Washington did is they gave the ball right back to Cal and gave them all the momentum back that they just had gained by getting a three and out. I, I, I've experienced this in college football. You go out on the field, you get a three and out, you come off to the sideline, everybody's high-fiving, great job defense. Usually the defensive coordinator will set everybody down. You're going to kind of talk about what happened, what worked well. And you couldn't they didn't even have even time to, get sit, to down. sit down. <laughs> yeah. And then they're calling the defense back onto the field. That is the worst thing that can possibly happen to a defense. Um and, and, and I'm going to be real with it. Sometimes the defense, they get a little mad at the offense. Like, are you kidding me? We just yeah, You had one job. Yeah, and now we're going right back on. So, yeah, it's, it, it does change the momentum and the feeling of the team for sure. Awesome. Thank you so much, Brian, for coming back on. And I'm so excited to have you on next week so that we can find a play for the Hawaii and Washington game. Hopefully it's a little bit of a better one than this one. But only time will tell. Thanks, guys. That was a really good on second thought, Mike. You had an amazing interview with Cam. Brian was super informative. I'm hoping we're getting to put this Cal game to bed for once and for all, but we shall find out. What do you think? I tell you what, the the way that he broke that down, it really kind of gives you an insight to kind of what Cam excuse me, Cam, what Bush Hamden was looking at on that matchup and what what um, what you had in the matchup in the mind of Jacob Eason because I think that would be the hot read, uh, the primary read. And so I, I, I like what he said and the, the ball, you know, we, we saw Aaron Fuller in, in other games where the ball was thrown behind and he uses this, his athleticism to reel that ball and that ball was out in front, which favors the defender. Um, you know, you can't make yourself longer. You can make yourself shorter, though. So, uh, anyway, great stuff. I appreciate both Cam Miller from Pro Football Focus and a new member of On Second Thought, Brian Jackson. Yeah, give them both follows on their social medias because they have a lot of great insights and great stuff. And, Mike, I guess one thing you're looking forward to about this Washington-Hawaii game. I'm putting you on the spot. Go. Uh, um. 
I want to see the playbook cracked wide open. I want to see, uh, you know, yeah, no saving anything. Yeah, the wide open (laughs) offense that that they can really get in rhythm because Cal for everything that they did, the probably the best thing that they did was not let Washington get into any rhythm. And, uh, they're going to need that. They're going to need that against, uh, against, uh, Hawaii and against BYU and then USC. So I think they, they need this time right now. If they have to put 50 on Hawaii, uh, do it. Uh, if you have to put, uh, 50 on BYU, then do it. Uh, because they're about to run the gauntlet of five straight games. So I think setting things up for those five straight games starts right now and it's gut check time for those receivers who's going to step up I definitely like it and I agree definitely with you on that one I would say that I want a gosh darn interception from the Washington defense that is something that I would like I know you kind of posted on your social media like turnover salmon is a jinx and well, you know the I, thing is the thing that's so I funny agree. about the, the thing that's so funny about the turnover salmon though is all these guys are uh, they're so uh, entrenched in it, but they call out Coach Pete if he's entrenched in some of his offenses and he won't give something up. These guys can't give up the tr- turnover salmon, so I mean, it, you know, it's pretty ironic how uh, hypocritical some people are. <laughs> Most definitely, and then kind of like you said, I would like to see some younger receivers getting some playing time and working things out, especially Quentin Pounds is out the next two games due to a suspension. So now's a great time to kind of figure out who the next up is and hopefully get some momentum going there. We saw what BBK did when somebody made a bad decision. Exactly. Uh, Exactly. Somebody BBK uh, at the wide receivers. We'll see. I mean, if you could get the Heisman in the NFL, I'd probably still be on this BBK for Heisman train. But (laughs) (laughs) awesome, awesome. Well, thank you so much, Mike, again, for taking time to do a show with me. And again, thanks to our special guests. Until next time, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. That way, every time a new episode is posted, it goes straight to the device you're listening on. Five stars only, thumbs up only, and we do appreciate your feedback and comments. So until next time, I'm Kayla Olin. He's Mike Martin. Go dogs. Go dogs. The proceeding was a Howling Husky production.